ATF, you boys are wrong. And if there's any question whatsoever that kids or women are involved, damn you, I tell you what, you keep your damn gun in your holster. You gotta argue with me, you catch me on the side of the road somewhere, you come and argue with me. You come point guns in the, in the direction of my wives and my kids, I'll, I'll meet you at the door any time. And I'm sorry some of you guys got shot. But, uh, hey, God will have to sort that out, won't he? Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Sick and Ron. Yes, you listen to Synchronon. The Sick and Ron, the world source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm on your host, E. Simon. Hi, I'm Kate Rambo. Hi, Kate Rambo. It's a very special day. Why is it special? Well, not exactly today, but this uh, this month is actually the 30th anniversary of the massive barbecue in Waco, Texas. Hey, it's also Aries season, so it makes sense, you know, they're a fire sign. So let's have a big old fucking bonfire for the Aries. Of course, I'm referring to the siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco uh, back in, when was that, 1993? It was also the first newspaper headline I can ever remember. Um, yeah, it's part just, of my childhood. Oh, I remember being obsessed with it at the time. I wrote like a paper on it. I was a senior in high school. Yeah. Well, people who are too young to remember the significance of Waco, it's when uh, federal agents aiming to arrest cult leader David Koresh surrounded his walled compound, Mount Carmel, in uh, Waco, Texas, there was an armed standoff that lasted 51 days, which ended in a botched raid that left 76 people, including 25 children, dead. I must say about this siege, my next-door neighbor has definitely heard me pumping out Nancy Sinatra for about 51 days, and uh, she hasn't cracked yet, so she's, she's tougher. Did you say Nazi Sinatra? Nancy Sinatra. That's one of the songs they played, but I no, think they is. would loop it. So she would just be going, these boots are made for walking. These boots are made for walking for hours, like eight hours. And what did they do? Animal noises too, like baboons and shit like that. I mean, they, it was like a interrogation techniques. Yeah. I mean, they still, they still did that at Guantanamo, but with Eminem. But yeah, that, that, that tactic oh. didn't really work. Wait, the Eminem lyric that I would just want on a loop is Mom's spaghetti, Mom's spaghetti, Mom's spaghetti, just and over and over again. That would force you to confess for sure. No, it wouldn't. I'd that. be like, play it again. I'm After like, I'm kind of autistic. Hours of hearing do you not that listen over to and over the, again? Do, when you love a song, do you not just listen to that same song and know of a song for like eight, ten hours? Because I do that. If I really no. love a song, it's all I listen to. I'm saying it's not the song on repeat. It's just that one line, one Mom's lyric. Spaghetti, on loop for 36 hours. Yeah, I would confess to whatever terrorist action they want me to. I would just sing the rest of the song in my head. I think I could cope with that. Possibly. Well, the U.S. I'm government America. definitely had some egg on its face after that botch raid. Probably at least two what dozen eggs. Anyway, um, Kate Rambo, what's your favorite Waco joke? 
I didn't start the fire. <laughs> That's my favorite Waco joke. Um, my favorite Waco joke is probably that little Timothy McVeigh was like, I'm really sad about this. So I'm going to go and blow up the Empire State Building. And then he was like, I can't blow that up. So I'm just going to fucking go for this building instead. That's not really a joke. I'm going to actually no, that's tell what you really happened. a Waco joke. What does Waco stand for? Um, whacked out assholes on crack. That makes no sense. What a cookout. I missed out the O. What a cookout. Yeah, I yeah. missed out the O. That's again. my favorite Waco joke, but I have a couple others that are pretty good. Um, how is Waco like a Snickers bar? All the nuts are, are inside. Roasted nuts. Oh, roasted. Oh, nice. Oh, I could totally eat a Snickers right now. What do David Koresh and Burger King, Burger King's Whopper, have in common? Char-grilled. Close. They're both flame-broiled. Hey. Why didn't Koresh surrender to the FBI? Uh, why? He didn't want to be grilled by authorities. <laughs> well, what's These another reason no why? No one near as good as Princess Diana. Another reason why. Yeah, what's another reason why he didn't surrender? I don't know. He didn't want the FBI to give him the 10th degree. But I'm pumped. And then the one that you'll love, because this is right up your alley. What do you call Asian Branch Davidians? <laughs> what? Rice Krispies. <laughs> Terrible. I do like that one. Terrible. One. Anyway, we're celebrating here. 30th anniversary of Waco, Texas. Um, and you know who else is celebrating? Whom? Whom? Donald Trump. He's holding a rally today. Today. um, March 25th, Saturday, in Waco, Texas. It's his first rally of his his, uh, campaign here, you know, for president. Um, It'll fall, which I think is more than a coincidence, uh, during the 30th anniversary of the siege of the Branch Davidian compound in uh, Waco. And this rally... Also comes as Trump reportedly faces criminal charges in New York City. And his big announcement last weekend where he said he's going to be indicted on Tuesday and that he's going to be arrested imminently didn't happen. But mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting that the rally coincides with this event. Yeah, I mean, nobody goes to Waco, do you? You fly into Dallas and you have a good time in Dallas. Nobody's going to Waco unless... You're making a fucking point. Neo-Nazis. It's like a neo-Nazi shrine. Oh, and the neo-Nazis are definitely going to be at this rally. Yeah, of course they are. With like fucking wearing... Ooh, that made me think. I wonder if he can get a Timothy McVeigh t-shirt on an Etsy. I'm sure people are selling that. I'm sure I'll be buying one. What are you talking about? I'll get a little Timmy McVeigh, uh, uh, McVeigh t-shirt. I'll wear yeah, it proudly. You'll be pretty popular here. In fact, people will probably think you're a proud boy or an Oath Keeper's like, wife. I think that's hilarious because up until 9-11, he did kill the most of you. Yeah, I guess he was, uh, he probably he had did. the worst terrorist act on American soil up until 9-11. But yeah, but I he mean, he's still, homegrown. But it's the worst terrorist act committed by American, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, somebody try and take his, his medal away from him. Well, so this, uh, this rally here in Waco uh, coincides with Trump using more uh, threatening language recently on his uh, Truth Social site um, as he rails against the potential criminal charges. So just this past Friday, he warned of death and destruction 
if he's charged by the uh, Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, who he calls a degenerate psychopath. It's a little bit of pot calling the kettle there. He's saying he's going to bring deaf. Is that not technically a deaf rat? Oh, it totally is. It's exactly what happened to, to, with the insurrection on uh, January 6th. I mean, he's warning. He's using it as a warning. It's free speech that there will be death and destruction. Like his minions are going to rise up and they're going to take their country back. And this is what he's been pushing on his tweets or his, his true social network posts. So, um, yeah, but I mean, once you give out a death threat, is that not a, like an actual arrestable thing? As I've said before, I mean, and he said it himself, he could walk in the street, put a gun up to someone's head, and they're not going to arrest him. He could shoot someone in the head, and the Republicans still would choose not to vote to convict him of anything. You know, I mean, it's I I think he's kind of untouchable. And this is this is his way of inciting people, you know, but also being you know guarded or defended under the uh, the veil of free speech. Um, Thursday, he described the uh, DA here, Alvin Bragg, as an animal. And he shared an image of himself holding a baseball bat next to a photo of Bragg, who is black, by the way. Oh, okay. Which is kind of funny. Did Donald Trump have a little white hood on as well (laughs) as he was doing it? I'm sure someone photoshopped that. But the president here, the former president, he's not the actual president, but the former president... Uh, continues to center his entire campaign around the 2020 election, which he lost but refuses to concede. He claims it was stolen. He claims it was a governmental uh, uh, conspiracy and that uh, he's a victim here. And he said at a conservative conference uh, just a few weeks ago that if he's elected again, he would be their retribution. Let's dial that back a little. So he says it's a government conspiracy. So why does he want to become part of the government that has held a conspiracy against him? Because he's going to clean it up. He's going to bring retribution. He said uh, he praises politicians like uh, whacked out Marjorie Taylor Greene here for supporting those being accused of the January 6th riots. And he said he's going to pardon all of them as patriots. Yeah, good luck at that, Donald. (laughs) So recently he kind of keels over. How is he still alive? I don't even get it. Um, Recently, he posted this song uh, with a link to donate to his campaign, which I think that whole deal with him saying that he's going to be indicted and and charged and arrested on Tuesday was just a way to, you know, rouse his followers and get them to donate. Oh, no, for sure. Now, this guy's like a master troll. Anyway, he posts this, a song called Trump Won with a link to donate to his campaign. God admit it's kind of catchy. It really is. That drums. This is what he's posting on his true social network asking people to donate. But, I mean, he continually maintains that this is a witch hunt. 
his arrest is a witch hunt, his potential charges are a witch hunt, and that there's sinister forces in the federal government that caused him to lose the uh, 2020 election. Of course, most people think he's, you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. However, the far right, the people who are going to be at that rally in Waco, Texas, the people who still maintain what happened at, uh, in Waco 30 years ago was, was a governmental disaster. And the fact that, and, and the reason why you need to be able to, uh, to have assault rifles to pr- protect yourself from governmental tyranny because of what happened in Waco, he's giving them a direct dog whistle here. And that's why he chose that city for his rally. Is his next stop going to be Ruby Ridge? <laughs> is that where he's going next? I wouldn't be surprised if he went to, you know, just outside of Ruby Ridge and a stop in Idaho because they all, that was a Trump state for sure. But, yeah. but that's the thing. And it's, it's, you know, um, I read a, a quote here, Heidi Byrick from, uh, she's the co-founder of Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. She says Waco's hugely symbolic on the far right. You know, there's not another place in the U.S. that you could pick that would tap into these deep veins of anti-government hatred, Christian nationalism. You know, it's, it's they, you know, that's why Waco represents all of these things. And that's exactly why Trump chose this, this landmark, you know, this tragic landmark to launch his campaign. But it is interesting, though. I mean, Waco, you know, the, the Waco was responsible for the rise of the militia movement. Definitely. Timothy well, McVeigh. I mean- Alex yeah, Jones? no, no, no. The militia movement was well going on long before Waco. Waco just like kind of kicked it up and not. Well, no, I mean it definitely. Uh, it was a it was a landmark in the rise of it. I mean Ruby Ridge, I would say, you know, instigated it, and I think uh, Waco definitely defined it and caused and, and gave it momentum. Um, yeah, I mean that's what uh, led to the the, the 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 bombing of the Oklahoma building, um, and the Waco massacre, as they refer to it has endured as a deep source of hatred and distrust of the uh, federal government amongst the, the far-right extremists, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the QAnon types. Um, it's, it's weird, though, that, uh, that Trump, who's held campaign rallies, you know, like probably a few hundred campaign rallies across the country, specifically chose this site. He's never had one in Waco. Yeah, and obviously nobody goes to Waco. Like, he's done it on absolute purpose. I mean, the timing would have been perfect had he been indicted, though. Oh, like it, it would have been fantastic if he got arrested at Waco. Well, if he was arrested on Tuesday and then released, obviously, on bail because he could afford to it, you know, afford it, he would then be in Waco for this big rally and be like, look, look what's happening to me, the government. He's the martyr, you know, and I think it would have like worked Paresh, out well. Yeah. But, um, you know, but, that, but obviously that didn't happen. But it's interesting, though, because regardless of the reasoning behind choosing Waco, you know, a certain proportion of Trump supporters will still read an anti-government message into the choice, you know, of this town. I mean, it's a dog whistle to these extremists. You know, these people who already distrust the government, who still think that Trump is the legitimate president, you know, and now they see that the government's trying to, uh, to, to, to charge him with actual crimes and arrest him. You know, he comes to Waco, Texas, you know, the symbol, you know, the, the symbolic uh, 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 landmark of the uh, of the far right movement. And it's, it's almost it, it fits perfectly in his narrative. Now, whether or not he mentions Waco in his campaign speech, that remains to be seen. 
Oh my God, it would be absolutely amazing to me if he compares himself to David Koresh. David Koresh, the nonce. It would just be hilarious. I'm wondering what he's going to say. But, you know, if he's going to promote this, the government tyranny, targeting him specifically, the witch hunt, it's the perfect place to send this type of message. Yeah, it's also fucking stupid, but okay. I mean, it's Trump. <laughs> He's doing way stupider things than this. I mean, it's masterful political theater, in my opinion. Anyway, yeah. on this week's show, we're going to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Branch Davidian cookout by sharing some lesser-known facts about the situation in Waco that uh, you might not be aware of, uh, such as how David Koresh became the leader of the Branch Davidians. I mean... It's something out of Game of Thrones, but with more meth, mullets, guns, and Jesus. I mean, I, I was reading about this last night, and I was like, holy shit. It's a, what an insane story. It is. And like, loads of people don't know about his like ties to England as well, which I think exactly. is Especially like Nottingham, London, and Manchester. Like, th- what was it? 80 people from Britain went over to Waco? Like- I mean... I find it amazing that, uh, you know, he was recruiting internationally because a lot of cult leaders don't tend to do that. So, no, you're so it's very rough. Well, before we get into all that, let's chat about the prophecy um, that foretells that each and every one of you will sign up for the sick and wrong patron or suffer an eternity of damnation. Ooh, spooky. But if you support independent media and uncensored free speech, then I think it's time for you to sign up for the sick and wrong patron. It's the American thing to do. I mean, <laughs> and you don't want to make baby Jesus cry, do you? Oh, no, we do. I do. But we're not asking, we're not asking for you to piss away your money in some kind of donation here. Well, you donate five bucks a month. You subscribe to the $5 a month tier on Patreon, and you get access to a full second show every week. Sick and wrong second show. Uh, this week, I go into uh, uh, details about me farting in the elevator right before the CTO and COO of my company walk in. I didn't realize, you know, I just kind of let one slip and I was like, oh, that, you know how like sometimes you let one slip and you're like, wow, that smells worse than I thought. Door opens and it's probably the two most important people in my company. I would just like to point out here that you don't have an olfactory sense. So if you are smelling it, then, oh, it must have been, <laughs> it must have been one of your smoothie uh smoothie farts it yeah well i would say that fart was smooth um anyway we also go into uh movie talk with uh sick and wrong kate rambo and i have seen a lot of movies uh recently and uh, we review them on the show Uh, one in particular that i was quite impressed with uh, was a 1996 horror film called head of the family it was brilliant i right i haven't watched that yet but i just watched alice sweet alice so i'm gonna talk about that it's a great movie um, you know, it's interesting. In 1996, Braveheart won the Best Picture Oscar is that, that year. Is that when Braveheart came the fuck out in 96? What a, a grave injustice. Head of the Family was a way better movie. It actually probably is. It's probably more historically accurate as well. <laughs> for only five bucks a month, you can sign up for the Sick and Wrong Patron and support free speech on the internet. For a few dollars more, you get access to our Sick and Wrong Overkill, our bonus mini-sode, as well as the Sick and Wrong Archives, the first 10 years of Sick and Wrong on SoundCloud Playlist. Patreon.com slash Sick and Wrong. Sign up today and, uh, and help, uh, help support free speech. Be an American. <laughs> so let me play this uh, quick Patreon promo, and then let's chat about uh, 
the big uh, the big cookout over in Waco, Texas. Hey, Sick and Wrong listeners. If you're not currently a Sick and Wrong patron, you might be missing out on special moments like this one. You know, you could just go refill your soda. They don't even serve booze. Well, some of them serve booze if they're topless. But like uh, the ones yeah, that are fully yeah. nude, or they call it juice bars. Like juice bars. A juice yeah. bar. That's what they call it, That's... yeah. Oh, know a why. juice bar. Juice bar, not juice bar. You, I thought you like were for juice. juice bar. Like a spa. It would be way better if it was a juice bar. <laughs> can you imagine a Jewish strip club? God, that would just be the most annoying oh, place in the world. Can you imagine the noises from the Jewish strip club? Just uh, all these old, old men going, oh, Oi. Oi, me. She wants me to tip her more. <laughs> <laughs> be a lot of haggling over the price uh, there, man. Yeah, yes. it's like, how much do you want for this lap dance? What am I going to get for it? All right? <laughs> <laughs> for only $5 a month, you can enjoy these special moments. A bonus news story, extra phone calls, and an hour's worth of outtakes every week at patreon.com slash sickandwrong. Sign up today, support the show, and keep it sick and wrong. But don't you ever... So this year marks the 30th anniversary of Waco, the fiery and ultimately deadly standoff between federal agents from the ATF and the FBI and members of the religious cult, the Branch Davidians. So the Branch Davidians were led by David Koresh, and they were holed up in his compound uh, on Mount Carmel. This is just outside Waco, Texas. So February 28, 1993, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, they raided the area after there were reports of sexual abuse, bigamy, and weapons stockpiles at the compound. Oh, yeah, they definitely had the weapons stockpiles, that's for sure. It was called Operation Trojan Horse. Nice. And so uh, these ATF agents here were searching for illegal weapons that were being made by this uh, religious cult here. They thought the Branch Davidians were legally converting AR-15 rifles into machine guns and making their own grenades. Uh, wait, I'm an innocent European here. So is a what? Is an AR not already a machine gun? No, it's a semi-automatic assault rifle. Oh, right. So they're making it fully so automatic. Yeah, where you just hold yeah. the trigger down and just spray bullets. Yeah. I mean, I'm learning about American culture. Surprisingly, I mean, they were adept at like manufacturing these weapons there. So they had like a full facility in order to make these. And obviously... Some some of them must have some kind of military training or some kind of background to help the, to help the other you know cult members learn how to do this. But regardless, the Branch Davidians weren't just going to put their hands up and surrender. Obviously you know, not. When they come at your front door, how are you going to come? Their hands on your head or on the triggers of your gun? And that's exactly what happened here. They had the triggers. They had their hands on the triggers of their AR-15s, and they shot back. And there was a gun battle that ensued, which left six members of the Branch Davidians and four ATF agents dead and set the stage for a 51-day siege um, at Mount Carmel. It would end on April 19th, 1993, with tanks and tear gas and an inferno uh, which killed 76 people, including 21 children who were mostly fathered by Koresh. Left them all dead. Random offspring. And crispy. And so... (laughs) While this whole, while Waco was going on, and even to this day, even right now at Trump's rally, this incident in Waco generated conspiracy theories about how and why 
such a show of government might and military might. I mean, they had tanks. Um, yeah. How the government could wield this might against its own citizens and how it would end in such a disaster. A lot of theories yeah. that, that are circulating about this. So the, the, the tragedy became known as Waco and introduced America to David Koresh, who was presented by the media at the time as kind of a mullet messiah, who was sort of walking the footsteps of what Manson and Jim Jones. Uh, right. No, I would say Koresh is a bit cooler than Manson, and he's a bit more down-to-earth than Jim Jones. I think Jim Jones is, like, sexier than Koresh. But, I mean, you know, they all wore jeans and T-shirts. They couldn't drink, but Koresh would go into town. He would, like, because Waco is actually outside of Waco, Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel. So he would go into Waco, and he would have beer and shit. So I think he was presenting himself as, like, a bit more all-American. Whereas but I can see fucking do that. the media drawing comparisons between the Branch Davidians and other evil cults, you know? Yeah, count how many times I say Jim Jones throughout all of this. I am sorry, I, I'm just in a Jim Jones era, and I'm not out of it yet. You it, are obsessed still, with Jim Jones. Uh, slightly. It's a, like I worked out that I've started going into the obsession about September, and I'm still in it. I think I started growing concerned when you named your vibrator Reverend Jones. <laughs> that that to me is kind of weird big black vibrator called reverend jones definitely a bit concerning um president bill clinton said a few days after mount carmel was uh, left in ashes he said i do not think the united states government is responsible for f- the fact that a bunch of fanatics decided to kill themselves uh that's true billy but also you had tanks there mate come on well Regardless of how Bill feels about the uh, the uh, tragedy here, it did rock the days, the early days of his administration. I mean, he'd only been president for about a year at the time, and, and it they contributed. Sued, and he got sued. You know, and it contributed directly to the Republican takeover of Congress in uh, 1994. They lost the House because of this. Now, there's a lot of you know, a lot of people are familiar with the story, um, but a lot of people aren't fully aware. You have some of the details, some of the minute details, even myself, like after, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a great documentary right now on that Waco. It's like a 12 episode series or something, but they really, you know, do a deep dive into it. But I mean, you could see a lot of documentaries on uh, YouTube as well. Um, But I I was doing some research last night and I actually learned a lot about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians that I had never previously uh, known. Uh, One thing, um, David Koresh wasn't even his real name. No, he changed it. Isn't he Vernon? Vernon something? David Koresh was born Vernon Wayne Howell, August 17th, 1959, in Houston, Texas, to a 14-year-old single mother named Bonnie Sue Clark. Poor Bonnie. And his father, Bobby Wayne Howell. Oh, my God. Bonnie and Bobby. Oh, that's kind of an icon, iconic couple name right there. Well, he didn't really know his daddy too well because before he was born, his father, Bobby, met another teenage girl and abandoned Bonnie Sue, um, who then moved in with a violent alcoholic. Oh, um, things aren't looking good for little Vern. <laughs> yeah, poor Vern. In 1963, Koresh's mother left with her boyfriend and placed her four-year-old son in the care of his maternal grandmother, Erlene Clark. Uh, she later returned when uh, young Vern was seven years old after marrying a carpenter named Roy Haldeman, uh, who she had a son with named Roger. Uh, Roy Haldeman is also an alcoholic and very abusive and wasn't too fond of young Vern 
and his uh, dyslexia. So this is interesting. Koresh had uh, many late night chats with the FBI uh, during the standoff. And you can listen to a lot of these on YouTube. I mean, they have the recordings up there. Um, But during these chats, he told the FBI that he was a lonely child. And he was teased by the other kids who called him Bernie and Mr. Retardo. (laughs) Which I actually ended up renaming my cat that. Uh, it's, it's an appropriate name for your cat, but these are like <laughs> names that I would just give like my regular mates, anyways. <laughs> like, get over it, Vernon. They're not even that bad. They could call you way worse stuff. He Mr. would never survive in Britain. Mister Retardo is not a bad name. I kind of like. I do like Mister Retardo. <laughs> Damo arigato, Mister Retardo. Retardo. Uh, due to his poor study skills and dyslexia, which is partially caused by his, uh, he had a uh, poor eyesight. Um, he, he was put in special education classes by his grandmother, Earlene. Oh, and he no. struggled in school, but he was drawn to the Bible, large portions of, of which he actually memorized, despite being dyslexic. He was obsessed with the Bible. And I think you could owe this to, uh, to, uh, his, to his grandmother, Earlene. She was a devout Seventh-day Adventist who uh, took Vernon to uh, Sabbath services in Tyler, Texas, and gave him on his birthday his first leather-bound Bible. So she's the one to blame. She's the one who influenced him to become a, a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, do they have, like, do you know any Seventh-day Adventists? No, but they are a doomsday cult. Actually, yeah. I do say no, but I have Californian relatives who are Seventh-day Adventists, and I actually never knew they were a doomsday cult until you told me. Yeah, I remember... Misty Ones, I've dated three Misty's. Misty One, her family were Seventh-day Adventists. And I had never at that point, never really heard of it, heard of like that religious mm-hmm. movement, I suppose. And so I started doing research and uh, I remember talking to her mom about it and she got really upset with me. Like she refused to discuss it because I kept saying like, well, you know, it's based on predictions that the world's going to end. And these predictions never came true, but yet you still believe. And she's like, well, it's not really about that. But, but well, yeah, it is. it is though. I mean, that's the history of the religion. And then Misty One was like, you can, you're not going to be able to reason with her. Mi- Misty One was like a complete rebel. Like she rebelled against all that. Good. Like, angry goth. Um, you know, that they're, they're all veget- They're pretty much all vegetarians as well. They were pescatarian, her family. But yeah, they yeah. are, uh, for the most part, vegetarians. But Seventh-day Adventists celebrate the Sabbath from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, which is pretty much what the Jews do. It's the Old Testament way. And they believe human history, mankind, will end with the second coming of Jesus. Ugh, and various wow. leaders of the of, uh, Seventh-day Adventist leaders have predicted the date of the second coming, I don't know, three or four times, erroneously. <laughs> and yet they still have a following. It blows my mind. He's going to be here next week. He isn't coming back because he was never fucking here in the first place. Anyways. Well, Mr. Retardo here ended up dropping out of Garland High School in his junior year. That's a shock. And so he spent three years working construction, doing odd jobs, living here and there, crashing in his grandma's house. Uh, He ended up getting kicked out of her Seventh-day Adventist church, um, disfellowshipped is is how they call it, for having sex with a church elder's 15-year-old daughter. He used a Bible verse to claim to her father that God wanted the girl to be his mate. Well, that didn't convince the pastor, and he booted him from the congregation. 
So um, you should get used to this feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a young loner, uh, David Korash Vern at the time, actually. Um, just cruising around Texas, smoking camels, drinking beers, which he referred to as suds. Uh, he learned to play a guitar that his uh, birth mother bought him. He said, I taught myself to play before anybody ever tuned that guitar. And once it got tuned, I had to learn all over again. But That's he funny. loved Elvis. He loved the Mamas and the Pampas. He loved Johnny Cash. Later, got really into Uriah Heep and Foghat. And much like Charles Manson... Koresh uh, flirted with a music career in Hollywood in the late 70s. So he was like, I don't know, early 20s, 21, 22, and he wanted to be a rock star. So he moved to Hollywood. Didn't exactly pan out for him, uh, much like Manson. But instead of going on a murderous rampage, he just moved back to, to Waco, Texas, where he joined the Branch Davidians. Now, the Branch Davidians, I've never met a Branch Davidian. Um, and I'd never even heard of the Branch Davidians up until this, you know, the uh, the cookout in Waco. Um, but the uh, the Branch Davidians were founded in 1935 by a Bulgarian immigrant to the U.S. named Victor yeah. Tasho Hutev. Maybe Hautev. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name. Victor uh, Hautev. Hautev. Probably not pronouncing it properly, but uh, he grew disillusioned with the uh, Seventh Day Adventist congregation. And it probably happened because the, um, I forget who the leader was at the time who predicted that the world was going to end like in the 1920s. <laughs> I think a lot of people were like, I don't really believe you anymore. And then they just started splintering into other groups. So Hotef and his followers settled on a plot of land near Waco where the Davidians would live, worship, raise children, and prepare for their prediction for the end of times. So I think that's what happened. The original leader of the Seventh-day Adventists is like, the world's going to end 1922. And when it didn't, they kind of lost faith in him and then found other leaders who are like, well, it's actually going to end 1948. And so then everyone's like, okay, we're going to believe Let's you. Prepare. So in yeah. keeping with the Seventh-day Adventist tradition, uh, the Davidians focused intently on the violent prophecies contained in the book of Revelation. And they believed the second coming was imminent. And that's what they did. They prepared for this. And so um, Victor Haltev here possessed the, the power of prophecy, or at least he claimed to. And he had a respectable following here at Mount Carmel. When he died in 1955, his widow, Florence, took over, insisting that she had inherited his gift of prophecy, probably through his semen. That's the way you do it, you know. Yeah, she'd probably guzzled enough of it in her time. Uh, this is just like a random, like just a random question. But why do they all think that Jesus is going to come back and he's like going to be hella pissed and kill everyone? Like, wasn't Jesus meant to be a nice guy who like made everyone eat fish? I think it's so revenge why... for being murdered. I so don't think that's of... like, I don't think Jesus was all about the revenge though. Wasn't Jesus meant to be like a super sweet, like, yo, dude, like wash my feet type guy. Why well, would he come so. back and, and be like angry? Until he's murdered. But God is a vengeful God. So I think he's sending him out to destroy all the sinners. But I think that would be against Jesus's nature. And all the non-believers. I mean, God well, killed, good. God killed, you know, his humans. Every now and then he'd throw a big disaster. Look at those. Well, are... God technically killed his son. Because God well, could just stop killing it Jesus. Um, but then again, we're speaking about fairy tales. <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> Florence Hautef here took over in 1955, and she 
set a firm date for the second coming. So the world was going to end April 22nd, 1959. At this point, there were 1,000 Branch Davidians who sold their homes, their businesses. They all went to Waco and Mount Carmel waiting for Christ's return, the second coming. Well, guess what didn't happen? Uh, Elvis. No, Elvis had happened by then. No, guess what didn't happen? The second coming. April 22nd (laughs) came and went, and it was pretty much called the Great Disappointment. So uh, (laughs) that kind of undermined their faith in Florence, who they were like, okay, false prophet. And so uh, she ended up kind of disappearing, and uh, she was succeeded by the Roden family, Benjamin, his wife Lois, and their son George. Benjamin Roden, who ended up dying in 1978, he originated his own branch group. And this was in 1955 after he took over from Florence with new teachings that were not connected with the original Branch Davidians that were part of the Hotef group. The saucier, because he is a nonce. Yeah, so around this time, uh, Lois was in charge because uh, Benjamin died. And uh, young David Koresh, you know, fresh from uh, trying to become a rock star, showed up with his guitar, and he started singing in uh, church services at the Mount Carmel Center. Everyone loved his voice. I mean, he kind of actually was kind of a good rocker. I mean, he, he definitely could, could, could keep a tune, put it that way. Yeah. He's not atrocious. I will say that Jim, out of the three, if we're going to compare Manson, Jim Jones, and Koresh as the musicians, Jim Jones hasn't smoked. Wonderful singing. Well, I don't know. Look at your game, girls. Great song. Even Guns N' Roses covered it. Yeah, is it? Yeah, Guns N' Roses covered it. But Jim Jones can carry a fucking tune. He's nearly a crooner. He's got a vibrato. He's fantastic and a very handsome man. Well, early '80s here, David Koresh not only sang in the choir, but he started claiming that he was having uh, prophetic visions. He had the gift of prophecy. Well, so at this point, Lois started taking notice um, of this this young acolyte here. And uh, there was speculation that that, uh, they were having a sexual relationship. Lois Roden, who was the widow of Benjamin Roden, who was by that point probably in her late 60s, like 66, 67, was having a sexual relationship with uh, with young Vern here. Mr. And uh, Koresh started claiming to uh, the congregants that God had chosen him to father a child by Lois, this 67-year-old lady. And that child would be the chosen one. Well, so Lois was down with this because I think she liked that, that young dick. And so, uh, young noodle. yeah, she allowed him to begin teaching his own message, which Koresh called the serpent's root, which caused <laughs> a lot of controversy in the group. Um, not to mention royally pissed off her son, George Roden, who intended to be the group's next leader once mommy kicked it. And he considered Koresh an interloper. And not only that, Koresh has claimed that uh, God ordained him to have a child with his mom really, really pissed him off. Oh, yeah, because he just knows that he's boning. He's like, he's, <laughs> he's boning his mom. mother. <laughs> <laughs> so before long, the power struggle between David Koresh and George Roden began to consume the church. And the Branch Davidians were forced to take sides. Despite what Lois, you know, the prophetess, uh, would, would tell them, 
the Davidians took sides. And so Rodin ended up getting the upper hand. He got a number of his followers behind him, showed up all with rifles, and forced Koresh and his crew right off of Mount Carmel, exiled them. Yeah, get used to it, David. It's your life, being ousted. So Koresh was unable to return to the compound. He brought his followers to Palestine, Texas, where he began teaching his own message and uh, recruiting new followers. So he started teaching the serpent's root. And his appeal was startlingly broad. He went to the UK. He went yeah, to, he did. Um, yeah, he actually went to the UK at uh, Bracknell College in Berkshire and uh, recruited yeah. members there. Um, he not only uh, uh, attracted worshipers in the US and the UK, but also Australia and even Israel. He recruited people, which is remarkable for the, for, you know, for him, this is pre-internet. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, guess if you think about, about it, well, if you think about the missionaries, Mormon missionaries used to do this as well. The only other cult I can think of that went, uh, that was kind of international is the Solar Temple. Oh, but, yeah, the Order of the Solar Temple. Yeah, uh, they're super interesting. But other than that, I can't think of anybody else who's definitely going <clears> around the world. Scientologists? Well, no, because um, Scientology's banned in the UK. Yeah, but they definitely are international. There's Scientology. Uh, there's Scientology churches in Japan. The, yeah, but they're not fucking here because uh, we can't classify them as a cult, which they quite rightly are. Which they definitely are. Yeah. Um, so David Koresh actually went to uh, Britain a couple times. So he went initially uh, before he was in control of the Branch Davidians, but then he went back in 1988 and. Uh, People thought he was like a Rasputin-like figure who mesmerized his disciples. I mean, convinced people to move to Waco from the UK. And they did. Like, and I, they had a, like a brainwashing fucking session in Manchester, of all places, just near, in Oldham. But I mean, if I lived in Oldham, I'd probably be like, fuck it, take me to Waco. I want to be here. Yeah, fuck he had this. recruitment meetings in London, Birmingham, Manchester, Berkshire. Nottingham as well. Nottingham, Nottingham yeah. I mean, you got yeah, around. people from Nottingham. I actually don't mind Nottingham. I'm going to put it out there. He would uh, persuade students to attend his meetings in a private house where for up to 17 hours, he would preach, preach to them about That's his how they belief get system. You. With yeah. tiredness and hunger, you'll fucking say and do anything. He told them he was a sacred lamb mentioned in the Bible's book of Revelation, who could single-handedly bring about the end of the world. And he also spoke of the biblical promise that he would marry 144,000 virgins. What? That's <laughs> too many fucking wives. How are you ever going to sleep with all of them? Now, that's some stamina. Um, that's like some serpent root going on right there. That's a lot of root in, David. He called his converts God's Marines. And he would say, he would tell them, this is what he prophesied, that he would be on television in 1993 and he would die for the world's sins. And so uh, uh, this lecturer here, Dr. Hugh Dunton, British lecturer, said that Koresh presented himself as a messianic figure. He saw himself fitting in somewhere with the plan of salvation as a divine figure and one who would be killed for the good of mankind. But people were mesmerized by this guy. He said that he mentally zapped people and reminded, uh, reminded uh, him of uh, Rasputin with his influence. And the thing is, you know, people left. They went to Waco. They left England. They left Australia. They left Israel. And they moved to Waco, Texas, to the headquarters here. And for relatives that, you know, must have been worried at the time. 
like what was going on. Yeah, well, there's nothing you can kind of do to stop people when they're in that kind of mindset. They're just going to go. Well, one memorable visit to Israel, he had a vision. He had a vision that convinced him he was the modern-day incarnation of the prophet Cyrus. And so, um, you know, he was exiled from the Branch Davidians. He was definitely at this point very deep, deep, deep dive. Like he deep dived into his uh, delusions. And he said that God was giving him powers. Like he had powers from God, powers of prophecy, you know, powers of, uh, of, of you know, of, uh, of prediction. Of shagging. Uh, Yep, definitely, definitely powers of sexual prowess. Uh, his fate, he was certain, would be martyrdom. He became convinced through conversations with God that Mount Carmel was the earthbound site of the Davidic kingdom and that he must return. So it was at this point he changed his name from Mr. Retardo to David Koresh. I'm joking. He changed his name from Vernon Howell to David Koresh. His first name, David, symbolized the lineage directly from the biblical King David. Um, from whom the new Messiah would descend. And Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great, the Persian king who was named a Messiah for freeing Jews during the Babylonian captivity. So by taking the name of David Koresh, he was professing himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David and a messianic figure who was um, carrying out a divine um, errand here for God. Speaking but, of films, uh, sorry, as an aside, can I just say that I think he got Cyrus from a film. I don't think he got Cyrus from the Bible at all. I think he saw the Warriors and was like, fuck me, Cyrus is cool as shit. <laughs> I'm going to name myself after. Can you dig it? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if that's where he got it. But fun fact here, he plagiarized his end time prophecies and his name. I mean, it wasn't oh. original. It wasn't his idea. Yeah, I know. He's such uh, an idiot. Yeah, he wasn't the original Koresh even, claiming to be the lamb, the prophet, the one who's going to read the seven seals and bring end times. That, that honor there belonged to a man from New York named Cyrus Teed, who was a physician in upstate New York in the early 1900s, who gained many followers at the time because he said he was the reincarnation of King Cyrus from the Old Testament. And Had Cyrus seen in the Hebrew, warriors as well? Well, this would have been... You know, well before that. And Cyrus in Hebrew is pronounced Koresh. So Cyrus Teed took the name Koresh and moved his followers to a compound just outside of Fort Myers, Florida. This is late 1880s. And he proclaimed in a newsletter sent out to the world that he was the lamb of the book of Revelation. Sound familiar? He said he was going to open the seven seals and he was going to do all the things, you know, that decades later, David Koresh said he was going to do. So the original, the OG Koresh, died in 1908 with his followers expecting him to return to life and bring about the prophecies. Well, that didn't happen. Not quite. <laughs> I read this, and there's a great book called uh, Waco, David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, and a Legacy of Rage by an author named Jeff Gwynn. Um, yeah, I read I a number of book. excerpts from it, but it's a great book. So He also wrote a book about Jonestown. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, he did. He actually he's and that's written like a great six Jones books. Book. <laughs> a great, great researcher. He was, uh, you know, a journalist at the time as well. So around this time, that Co- that uh, Vern was reborn as David Koresh and was planning his re- reappearance at Mount Carmel, as predicted by God. The Branch Davidians were losing their faith in George Rodin. 
Georgie wasn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't holding the fort down. So during this period of exile for David Koresh, um, the prophetess, Lois Roden, she died, 1986, and uh, you know David was exiled. And so Roden, Georgie, remade Mount Carmel, Carmel in his own image, Carmel. Re- rechristening it Rodenville. Can I say, I know exactly what Lois died of. She died of uh, wanting dick. Broken heart. Because, you know, David, yeah, David had taken the dick away. So she died of, like, lack of dick. And if he'd have gone there and given her the serpent root, I bet that would have carried her on for, like, a couple more years at least. She probably would have stuck through it. But, I mean, at this point, she would have been, like, what, like, 70? But what's funny is that uh, this guy's such a typical cult leader here, this this George Roden. So as soon as mommy died... And he exiled David Koresh. He renamed that whole compound into Rodenville and just started acting the part of a tyrant, imposing harsh, harsh rules for everyone there. Also, you know, being able to have sex with anyone's uh, partner. Yeah, but David's going to steal that. Be of like, course. That sounds what? like fun. Well, I think that's kind of, you know, par for the course for a cult leader. So by the time Koresh returned... Rodin's followers were uh, ready to split. I mean, they were ready for mutiny here. So Rodin was panicked because here's David Koresh coming back as the prophet, you know, with his crew. And so he took drastic measures to secure the congregation's loyalty. He went out and he challenged Koresh face to face with a kind of a crazy contest. He said, whichever man could raise the dead would be the rightful spiritual leader of the Branch Davidians. And so, bringing Jim Jones, who could also do, could also raise the dead. I'm sorry, I'm going to mention Jim Jones all the time. Well, so Koresh, yeah, but was Jim Jones challenged by anyone, by any of his congregants, to raise the dead for leadership? Because they all loved him. I know exactly. So that didn't happen. But that's what, exactly what happened here. Is Koresh was uh, challenged by him? But what Koresh did is uh, he kind of used Wiley, David Koresh. So while Rodin was exhuming and praying over the corpse of a woman who had been in the ground for 20 years, that's who he was oh, going no. to, uh, he was going to resurrect. David Koresh went to uh, Waco authorities and let them know that Rodin was digging up bodies. Oh, he's a snitch. He's a, a total pigeon. snitch. And so, uh, you know, the cops were quite upset and, uh, and, uh, you know, ended up uh, telling him, like, listen, you know, we're going to look into this, but we need proof that this has happened. And so Koresh was like, I'll give you proof. And so Koresh claimed that what happened next was an honest effort to get photographic evidence of Rodin digging up corpses. And so he got his crew together, all wearing camouflage, mapped out the whole situation, a lot of weapons, assault weapons, rifles, shotguns. And he met a similarly heavily armed Rodin, and a fight broke out between the two factions. Shots were fired. Rodin was injured. He got shot in the head, but not fatally. And the skirmish would go down as like a, you know, a precursor to the Waco siege. I mean, they were definitely a violent uh, religious sect here. So Koresh and his followers were put on trial for the attack. It was the first time courts really you know, it, were aware of the Branch Davidians. And George Rodin... Um, George Roden actually had tried to uh, file suit against Koresh in the past because he claimed that he had raped and brainwashed his mother, but they dropped it. And much like this, this time, uh, Koresh and his followers were acquitted in this trial over the assault on Roden's compound. 
but the rivalry was still intense. It only ended um, the following year, 1987, when Rodin, Georgie here, was charged with murder for killing his roommate, Wayman Ader, with an axe. Split yeah. his head open with an axe because he believed the man was an assassin in the pay of David Koresh. The guy was whacked. So he was wh- whacked, but at this point, I think paranoia was just running deep, wasn't it? Well, that's that's exactly what happened. He was found uh, not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a mental hospital. Well, now guess who took over as Messiah? David Koresh. Is mine. And so David Koresh, you know, led them for a good five years as the uh, the head of the Branch Davidians, as the chief Messiah here. And it was a productive time for them. And, you know, had its, uh, its fair share of, uh, of troubles as well. Um, he was a harsh leader, too. He instated new rules for his followers, and he let some of the old legal ones kind of fall by the wayside here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Davidian survivors said that Koresh knew the Bible back and forward and was a very uh, effective teacher. And they believed in him. They really did. Um, they claimed that they learned more with him in one night than a lifetime of going to church. Well, yeah, because he's preaching at you for 18 hours and you're sleep deprived. Of course, you're going to be like, this guy just fucking knows his shit. Well, he'd memorized the book of Revelation. So he would just oh. you know, pull up scripture, oh. you know, in seconds. How um, fucking boring to memorize the world's... It's like such a badly written, boring book. It's like Harry Potter. Like, I'm not reading it. Don't make me. Yeah, but it's a, it's a great way to wield control over the feeble-minded. Well, yeah, oh, I suppose. But yeah, having said that, though, the family that the families that he convinced from Britain to go over, like they weren't dumb. They were all like middle class and were like considered the best of the Seventh Day Adventists. There were lawyers. I mean, they were like very educated yeah. people. That's that's. But I mean, that kind of thing that sort of plays into his influence. He's a very charismatic individual, as a lot of cult leaders are. Uh, Mount be. Mount Carmel residents here endured dismal living conditions. Uh, they had, you know, they didn't have indoor plumbing. So they had, to, they had to use outhouses and plastic buckets. Their meals were spartan. Water was scarce. Um, you know, they but were that's abused. all the way there to keep you under control. Punishment, yeah. Adults yeah. regularly peddled children. And Koresh demanded total obedience to his rigid yet arbitrary rules. Uh, he also maintained a harem of women and girls, some as young as 12. And he sired at least a dozen children. Oh, he was a shagger. He encouraged marriages between men and multiple women, as well as marriages to underage girls. And he engaged in sexual relationships, with not only his wife, but his wife's 13-year-old sister. Wow. He's so, a real class act. <laughs> he announced an additional new light that he needed to take on many wives. Many of them because now he interpreted re- directly out of the book of Revelation that the lamb is forced to spread his seed. He would have to spread his seed and have children, and that there would be 24 elders who would help the Lamb rule the new kingdom of God after the end times. What a convincing argument. It's like, <laughs> yo, the world's going to end. I'm going to need my, you know, I'm going to need my crew here. So that's why I got to fuck all your kids. I got to fuck all your daughters. And I got to fuck and your you wives. you can't fuck them because it's got to be my seed. It's got to be my seed. Oh. So all these, so even if you're married to them, you're not married to them anymore. They're now technically my wives. Stop fucking them. There's got to be 24 elders to help uh, to help the lamb. I'm the lamb here. I got a rule, so I need 24 <laughs> elders to help, and the 24 elders have to be my children. Therefore, I got to do a lot of fucking. Okay, 
And everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. Book of Revelation says it's true. He must have been quick in the sack, though. Think about it. Because if he's preaching for like 17, 18 hours a day, he's also doing his five-mile jogs in the morning. You know, that all eats up time. So you're probably talking about what? Maybe just a five-minute fumble is all you're going to get out of Koresh? Because I feel that Jim Jones would have spent the evening with you. Probably. He's more of a lover. But don't you think maybe Koresh might have been fucking while preaching? Oh, maybe. Just with his pants down. He's just like... Just let me finish this. Just doing it doggy style while he's like preaching from the book or up, just holding up the Bible. I could see that. You know, you got to maximize their time. Uh, Koresh covered the abuse um, because there were claims of child abuse in in newspapers at the time. And he covered the abuse by assigning false husbands to all of the women and teaching children not to mention what happened within the walls of Mount Carmel. Um, FBI agents also said that Branch Davidians who wanted to leave had to undergo an exit interview with Koresh, who would remind them that wayward followers that abandoned him were rejecting salvation or, and were going to endure eternal damnation because they're turning their back on the true God. The compound was also secured. People, I mean, there was bodyguards, security guards. I know one story about um, a, a woman and her children who escaped and they had to do it at nighttime, dressed all in black, and they like crawled on their bellies to get across, out. like the, yeah, across the Texas dirt. And you know, there's like fucking scorpions and snakes out there. And she took this risk. And then when they got to the gate, well, to the fence, they scaled over it. But that's, you know, they were fuck. By the the time Waco actually happened, they a lot of them were dying to get the fuck out. Well, yeah, you could, I mean, at the time, I mean, you're enduring psychic and sexual violence, a uh, physical violence. And then here yeah. you got a guy saying that, you know, the end of times is near. We're all going to die. So, I mean, if you think about it, they were a doomsday cult. They're the definition of a doomsday cult. Yet people still debate whether, in fact, they were a cult. Experts still debate whether or not they were a cult. I don't know how anyone can debate the fact that they were a They're a cult. I mean, there's I- never... People still debate a lot of different, uh, you know, facts of uh, of what happened at Waco, Texas, but there's never been a consensus about whether the group was a legitimate cult. No, think of it like this. So a cult becomes a cult because it begins as a culture. But then when you close yourself off from the outside world, that's when you become a cult, which is exactly what they did. They had armed guards. They didn't let strangers in. The members, David Koresh could go out into Waco and go and have his fucking beer and play gigs uh, in bars, but none of his cult members could. Like, none of his church members were allowed well, outside the compound. That is a cult. But when you, inst- when you instill your own set of rules, when you're allowed to impregnate the daughters of your followers and, the, and, and, uh, and have as many wives as you want, you are, and you're controlling these people's, you know, the, the, their life. It's a cult. And when you're not allowed to leave, it's a cult. And that's the thing. It's like the fact that people even argue about it is uh, kind of mind-blowing. But it's interesting. This guy here, uh, Dick Revis, who I'll talk about in a bit too, he wrote the book Ashes of Wacko. Um, Ashes of Waco, I keep keep calling it Waco, but the Ashes of Waco, uh, he was also a journalist from the Dallas Observer. He said what the word cult really means is that your religion is smaller than mine. He's like, there was a man who had 12 disciples and performed miracles. So if Koresh was a cult leader, maybe Jesus was. Maybe the Pope is. Jesus didn't want to kill his people. 
Yeah, but I, I'm pretty I can, sure the Pope doesn't can, either. But you can argue liberty. that Jesus is a cult leader as well. I think that well, could yeah, definitely I'll, be argued. Technically, if you think about it, if you want to fucking get metaphorical about it, yeah, all religions are cults because it's a form of brainwashing. You do it when you're a child and you're made to believe in fucking sky gods that don't fucking exist. It's brainwashing. So, yeah, but every religion's a cult if you break it down like that. Experts have argued that uh, the government and the media freely use the word cult to excuse and, and rationalize the arguably excessive force that they use to... Uh, to, to, to raid the compound there. Right. So, maybe. you know, just maybe. a little. <laughs> but a major unknown here, from which still to this day no one knows who shot first. We'll never know. We'll never know. I mean, never. you know, the Davidians have been stockpiling illegal weapons at the compound. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why the ATF raided the property. But no one really knows, did the Davidians shoot first? Because they say the ATF did. The ATF said, no, we were responding to gunfire from the Davidians, who were heavily armed. But you know what's interesting? I never knew. Um, UPS actually tipped off the ATF. Did you know that? Uh, Yeah, I did. I didn't know that. I had no idea. In June of 1992, a UPS driver said he delivered a package to Mount Carmel Center that actually opened, and inside was just you know, a box full of automatic weapons, hand grenades, and 90 pounds of explosive powder. It's funny to me that you could ship that back in the day. Like in the early 90s, you could just ship that through UPS, and that was cool. Yeah. I will um, say this about the ATF, though. Um, like, you guys have gun laws, and you have them for a fucking reason. So if you catch wind that somebody's stockpiling 200 guns and, like, what, 90 pounds of... You've got to investigate. It's your fucking duty, isn't it? But it isn't your duty to pay Nan- play Nancy Sinatra for 50 days straight. I think that was more the FBI than the ATF at that point. Because the ATF botched the raid. Developed. That's when the FBI took over. But yeah. that's the thing. The ATF, you know, it's true. They're tipped off by UPS, a UPS driver who was really freaked out when he saw that. It's the ATF's duty to investigate. That, that's, why, that's why it's like it's not a grave injustice, as like these far-right extremists claim here, as Timothy McVeigh maintains. The ATF, that's their duty. That's their job. That's their purpose, is to investigate the illegal stockpiling of arms. And that's what they were doing. So their goal with the raid was to search the premises and arrest Koresh for unlawful weapons possession. But the plan went south real quick. Because uh, oh, the yeah. Branch Davidians shot back, the the four you know the ATF it turned into a you know a firefight. Four federal agents died. Six Branch Davidians died. Chaotic shootout occurred, and it's still not clear who who um, you know who shot first here. Um, some people claim that the first shot was an accidental discharge from an ATF agent that sparked a response from another agent. Possibly, but I would just. I just think the ATF agents would be much cooler under pressure because they're obviously trained compared to like the Branch Davidians who by this point are like what? You're malnourished, you're sleep deprived, you've been told by somebody that the end of the world is coming and that the government is your enemy and then suddenly they're at your door. I I put a lot more like um, uh, thing in, in them shooting first and the ATF just like, you know, they're American. They're going to fucking shoot you back. Well, the author, Jeff Gwynn, pointed out that ATF agents weren't told anything about the Branch Davidians. Didn't know anything about what they believed. 
Uh, they know about Koresh's prophecies that Mount Car- Carmel would be attacked by the agent of Babylon. And, uh, you know, which, if you think about it, that's kind of what they thought the ATF were, agents of Babylon. So, you know, the ATF was told that there's a religious, crazy religious nutball in there, and he had sheep that were living in this big hovel, and that they had a lot of illegal guns that they were probably going to use on innocent civilians if there isn't some kind of intervention. So they staged this raid without really knowing what Koresh was telling his, was his followers, and that this raid prove Koresh's prophecies to be true. You know, I mean, here, here they were. So they thought that they were going to go in with a raid and kind of surprise everybody. Um, and uh, as it turned out, no, they met a heavily armed, you know, cult. And a whole group of people who were armed as well, probably if not better than the, the ATF people, you know, the ATF agents who were uh, conducting the raid. Yeah. So the shootout sparked the siege. And it was a 51-day siege, which ended in catastrophe. Um, so after uh, the ATF botched that raid, the FBI was called in. And so, uh, the, the, and then the, the started uh, the siege here, February 28th, 1993. So I got a clip here of uh, a 911 call made by David Korash. Kind of amazing that these uh, recordings have been preserved, but I mean, that is kind of uh, he's got a point there. A bunch of people are dead. Whose fault is it? Well, someone shot first. But what's interesting about it, and a lot of people, and this is why you know a lot of these extremist groups point the finger at the uh, the ATF and these government agencies, because this happened like just months after Ruby Ridge. And so they felt like these law, these federal law enforcement agencies kind of needed a big win after the, you know, the mishap that was Ruby Ridge. I was about to call him Ruby Ridge a mishap. <laughs> well, I mean, what happened? It was a murder. It was I a mean, complete murder by the government. Yeah. But I mean, it was, but it was a mishap. It obviously wasn't conducted properly. And so here you have, you know, so people's faith in the FBI and the ATF at this point it's kind of low after what happened in Ruby Ridge. And now what's going on at Waco? So I, I could see it's kind of a publicity nightmare, like a PR, a PR nightmare for uh, these federal agencies. So I think they needed a big win, at least a, a peaceful resolution to this standoff, which yeah. didn't happen. <laughs> but no, Ruby no, yeah, Ridge... Not 50 fucking days of it either. Well, Ruby Ridge uh, was, uh, uh, happened in August 1992, just a few months prior to what happened here at, uh, at uh, Waco. But uh, FBI and U.S. Marshals engaged in an 11-day standoff with a self-proclaimed white separatist named Randy Weaver, his family, and a friend named Kevin Harris in an isolated cabin um, in Idaho. Uh, Weaver's w- wife, Vicki, 
his 14-year-old son, Sammy, and a, a U.S. Marshal were killed during the siege. Hey, and the dog. Oh, and the dog. They shot the fucking they shot dog. The dog was the, the dog. first victim. They shot the dog. They shot the fucking dog. The U.S. government killed a fucking innocent canine. Well, so banking, I guess, trying to, I guess, salvage their credibility and in their you know, need for kind of a big win and a peaceful resolution here, the ATF you know, and the FBI showed a massive show of force here. And uh, they thought that they could go in and stun and incapacitate Coercion's followers and rehabilitate the image of uh, you know, federal law enforcement. Well, that's not, not what happened at all. The Branch no. Davidians were ready for a fight. And uh, that's exactly what happened. But you know what's weird? The, so when the FBI took over, they, they, they did some pretty weird shit. Some pretty weird surveillance techniques. Like, did you hear about the bugs that they slipped into milk cartons? Yeah, that's a good one. It was yes. all very like old school war tactics in a lot of way, or like Vietnam. Like they were back in now. Covert like, operations. Putting the lights on and like cutting all the power and stuff like that. So Koresh had previously allowed a few children to leave the compound during the siege. So the FBI was like, well, we're going to give some milk to the rest of the kids there, you know? Uh, Koresh initially refused a deal, but the FBI sent him milk anyway because, you know, they were obviously short of food. Inside the milk cartons were bugs, listening bugs. And so within there, I mean, you know, some of the bugs even found its way into uh, Koresh's room. Most of the talk was somewhat mundane, but there was, there was some talk that was uh, concerning. Uh, they had David Koresh on tape saying, let me send some guys up there and blow their heads off. The bugs also allowed the agents to get a read on, the, on the, their initial face-to-face meeting with Koresh's deputy, who we mentioned before, Steve Schneider, and the FBI negotiator, Brian Sage. Uh, Schneider um, said on tape, uh, Byron, um, I liked his personality. I believe he was 100% sincere. I saw concern in his face and eyes, and I think he, I believe what he's trying to do. But this breakthrough didn't last too long because Koresh completely canceled any face-to-face meeting. So nothing really happened from that. Uh, we mentioned the uh, torture tactic, Nancy Sinatra, which I find kind of a bit of a far cry for torture. I like Nancy Sinatra. I like her too. I mean, what, there's plenty of other songs from 1993 that they could have picked. Yeah, like so Boots Are Made For Walking is a damn good song. It is. And even if you're just hearing a snippet of it, I'd be like, yeah, I can hear this on repeat. It's not going to bother me. Well, they also Maybe she played. Wasn't as cool then. They also played some heavy metal, hip hop, some aggressive pop, and uh, songs such as Barney the Dinosaurs. I love you. That would annoy me. <laughs> Any like children's nursery rhyme or anything like that would, yeah, that would bug the shit out of me. Well, Koresh launched a counterattack with uh, his own recordings of his original rock compositions. That would annoy me even more. At that point, I'd be like. David, I'm doing it. And I would just set fire to myself like I was a Buddhist monk making a protest. Well, so, you know, initially negotiators had kind of reached some type of uh, agreement with Koresh and he was going to release some of the Davidians. But then he backed down from his offer and refused to release anyone. Uh, They said that he could broadcast a message on national radio if he released people, which he did. But then he backed out about it completely. And they started sending out videos to the media of him with his children and his wives saying, everything's cool. What are you talking about? People aren't being held here against, his, against their will. So here's a video of him. 
He doesn't he doesn't quite have a mullet in this video. I'd like to share with you uh some of my family. And we just thought we'd kind of break the ice and allow people to see just exactly you know what kind of people we have here. I'd like to start off first of all with my oldest son. His name is Cyrus. Come sit over here, son. This kid, this kid has really long hair. He looks like Kurt Cobain. Say hello to everybody. Hi. Wave at him. There's a camera right there. It's Cyrus. Why do all the kids kind of look like Korash? Every kid in that video. <laughs> Why do you think? <laughs> His DNA is strong. <laughs> well, despite these videos that he had one happy family living in the compound, the FBI became very anxious and aggressive in their approach. And they thought that the only way to get everyone out safely was with force. So they kind of felt that the negotiation tactics weren't working. And that was part of the issue here with this standoff is that you had two competing FBI teams who clashed over how to handle this, uh, this incident with the Branch Davidians. And there was even like name callings between the two. What so, would you have done, though, if you were in that situation? If you were the FBI and there's this fucking mad kind of cult... Like, I would have. I you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah, but I think I would have kept with the negotiation before I would have launched like tanks trying to. There's children in there. There's there's children, and I think ah fuck them. You have to. Keep I would have just been mind. like, let's get the fucking napalm out. Let's just fucking t- get rid of them because who's gonna miss these cunts? Let's just do it, lads. <laughs> Scorched earth approach. So there's the negotiators. So the FBI had a team of negotiators who were trying to establish a relationship with Koresh and the other Davidians. And then there was the hostage rescue team, which handled the tactical maneuvers. And the two sides were kind of at odds. So you can kind of tell, like, the negotiators were probably all, like, Harvard-educated. And the, uh, the, uh, the hostage rescue team, ex-military, for sure. Yeah, well, like me. Like, let's you know? just fucking get in there, lads. Let's just do this. Sick of waiting. Sick of all doing this. Let's get Well, it. I mean, 51 days. It's a long time. So the negotiators felt hamstrung by these hostage rescue team members that were making aggressive moves, like blasting music, like the Nancy Sinatra and the Barney the Dinosaur, crushing the Davidians' cars and a guard shack. On, while uh, you know, while they were trying to have discussions here with Koresh, it wasn't helping. And, no, but uh, you'd be so bored. <laughs> like, yeah, I would but totally I mean, be like, "What can we crush?" <laughs> you're trying to negotiate a peaceful resolution to a conflict. Meanwhile, they're blasting Barney the dinosaur and smashing their cars to pieces. I'm kind of on that side. I'm sorry. <laughs> I would be with those boys. Come on, let's do it, lads. Should we go for a swim in the fucking pool? I mean, the hostage nego- the the hostage rescue team was like, let's deny them food or water. Let's cut off all their power. You know, I mean, they were they were harsh. You know, here's yeah, an example of totally some of the, the tension here. So Byron Sage, who was a, the negotiator, um, who was talking to Schneider, made a number of trips. You know, to to uh, you know to the tactical sites where the uh, hostage rescue team had their bases. And there was one time when there was a notation on one of the porta potties. He was using the porta potty, and it just said. Sage is a fucking Davidian. Yeah, Which, I'm totally with the crew. Smashing <laughs> shit, writing horrible graffiti, going, what song should we play at them next, lads? Should we play a Bowie song next? Well, Koresh repeatedly told investigators that he wasn't planning a mass suicide. And so that's yep. why a lot of these negotiators were like, I think we can reason with this guy. But officials were worried about the degree of control that he had over the flock. And they were worried... You know, much like what happened at Jonestown, that that's what was going to be the case here. 
So convinced that Koresh might surrender, the negotiators kept talking to him. But then um, finally the FBI was like, we need to act now. And they got the call from Attorney General Janet Reno, who request, who just, who told the FBI, like, she approved the request to mount the assault. I mean, she thought that, you know, children being abused for years, that she thought that the Branch Davidians were going to use kids as human shields. You know, and, the, and children, you know, that's the thing, though. Children were released, and whether they were coached to say they were abused, whether they were actually being abused, regardless, the FBI used that as the reasoning behind this uh, and the justification for the raid. And so well, someone think of the children. Well, Janet Reno approved the assault. You know, it's funny. There's uh, conspiracy theories uh, from Roger Stone and Alex Jones that it was Hillary Clinton actually who gave Janet Reno the order to gas the compound. Wow. Of course, of course. <laughs> well, April 19th, 1993, 51 days after the siege started, the FBI attacked. They used combat engineering vehicles to blow holes in the side of buildings, tanks, and th they threw tear gas in there. And when the Branch Davidians fired on the agents, they responded with grenades and more rounds of tear gas. What a so, fun day at work. <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching this, though. I was riveted. And a few hours after the tear gas was launched, fires broke out in different areas of the compound, and then a massive explosion occurred. And again, we'll never know who... Who started the fire? We'll, well that's never the know other if thing. they did it. That's the, the other FBI. thing, you know. Did the uh, Davidians, the Davidians claim the FBI? You know, the FBI attack started the fires. Well, as the FBI said, no, it, it was the Branch Davidians who uh, who started the fire. And they, well, some uh, of the bodies had um, fuel on them when they found them. Well, there's audio recordings from the milk carton bugs that suggested Davidians started the fires, acting on orders from Koresh. So there's a question, like one of, uh, you can hear on the surveillance tape, a Davidian saying, start the fire, got some fuel around here? And someone's like, right here. And some there asked, did you pour it yet? And he goes, I haven't yet. Do you want it poured? He goes, yeah, pour it right here. We need more fuel. And this is all on, on audio. Yeah. You know, and even Koresh was a, a Davidian, uh, a Davidian who actually survived said he recounts uh, Koresh saying, it's too late to turn back. You're going to get to the point where there's no way out and you're going to die. So you need to put your trust in God now. Jim Jones, Jonestown. Well, I Dipstick. mean, that's the thing. Uh, most of the Davidians didn't die, you know, from the grenades or bullets. Most of them died from smoke inhalation after the fire began. I read a, well, I've heard, yeah, I've read it, like seen an interview with one of the, the, the actual woman who survived and she came out with like third degree burns all over her body and she like somehow lived through it and she like crawled out. But she said, cause they'd been without heat and the house was so cold for so long when they all started feeling the heat rising up through the floor, they were all a bit like, oh, is it over? Like, oh, like <laughs> they brought the heat back. <laughs> Yeah, and they were just like super happy that the heat was back. And then obviously the smoke poured in and that's what's going to kill you. Well, you know, the compound didn't cool down until a week after. Like it was that well, hot like, from the explosion. That's like Whitney Houston's bath. What the hell? <laughs> well, so investigators found 75 bodies. So only nine of the Davidians had actually escaped the fire and all of the remaining 25 children died. Well, they have little lungs, so they're probably going to die like super fast. Koresh and his deputy, Steve Schneider, were found with fatal wounds to their heads, um, suggesting Gunshot. suicide or maybe a murder-suicide. We'll never know. Uh, Koresh was 33. 
the age of Jesus when Jesus uh, died. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been, even to this day, a lot of speculation if this was a mass suicide. Because all the, most of the bodies were found in a concrete bunker full of guns and ammunition. So were they trying to escape? Did they think the bunker was the safest place for them to, you know, hunker down and hide? Maybe. I think they were trapped there by a madman who was drunk on power. But that's the thing. There's a lot of questions. What did Koresh tell his followers? Why did he keep them from leaving when he knew that they're probably going to, to going to die you know, when the FBI attacked? How had he gone from, you know, negotiating with the FBI to refusing to let anybody leave? You know, did Koresh kill himself or did his followers perhaps kill him? It's the e- it's a total ego trip. It's just like Jim Jones. It's it's like he he can't let anyone leave because they're effectively leaving him. So he can't have that happen because his ego can't take it. And he's not going to lower himself to the level of like, you know, being killed by the man. He'll go out by his own rights, just like Jim Jones. I mean, Jim Jones was shot. He didn't take the fucking cyanide. Like, so yeah. it's like that. It's, well, a, it's all a power trip by just fucking There's... men who won't seek therapy. <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's horny men who want to get laid. But that, I think the one <laughs> question true. that still resonates to this day, and I think is one of the main reasons why Donald Trump chose Waco as a, as a, a the, the, the point point to launch his campaign, is did the government act appropriately during this standoff? No, of course not. Well, who shot first? Who's responsible for the fire? You know, people claim it was the FBI and the ATF. ATF, much like Ruby Ridge negligent here once again six months later at Waco um you know people say they could have arrested Koresh during one of his many jogs weeks before the siege I mean it would have been easy for them just to, to go and just pull up and put him in a police car and arrest him on the spot I think it's like you said before though they wanted to show the public that they were the you know they were redeeming themselves and they would have looked much more redeemable if they'd have come out of a compound where there's a bunch of wackos and they came out with like all these modified Saving weapons face, and man. all these grenades that's going to look much more impressive than them just like arresting like a manson wannabe well i do think the government wasn't fully aware of co-rationals attentions and the fact that they, that they would there's a good chance that they're going to be aggressive when confronted i don't think they were aware of that fully no i don't, I don't think so. i think there are communication issues i think there was uh education issues i don't think they researched enough but the fact that they had to put on this big military type show bring several local agencies you know people claim and that that's why you can see why conspiracy theorists to this day and donald trump's probably bringing this up at the rally they needed a big target to rehabilitate their image the davidians were it you know it's, this would have been a win-win situation if they would have brought them out show of might we we resolved this whole situation. We saved the children. But, um, you know, that didn't really happen. But one thing we do know for sure is that the siege at, uh, at Mount Carmel galvanized the right-wing militia movement, for sure, and inspired a very angry Timothy McVeigh, who had made pilgrimages to the, the site at Mount Carmel many times, uh, inspired him to uh, blow up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City on the second anniversary of the siege at Waco as payback. Well, he was there for a lot of the siege. Him and a lot of his buddies were there. 
for um, a lot of the siege watching it in real time well that's the thing i mean it's it's it became the central point, the focal point of the argument being made by the NRA and the gun lobby. We need military assault weapons and large caches of ammunition to protect ourselves from government tyranny. And, you know, Trump it plays right into that rhetoric. I mean, it works for him, you know? So yeah. Wacko was a gun raid that definitely ended in like the worst law enforcement disaster in American history. But it was a paranoid gun enthusiast's worst nightmare. So I can understand why all these people still talk about this to this day. I can understand why Alex Jones launched his career with his conspiracy theories about uh, Waco. You know, he was only 19 years old when it went down. Oh, right. So he was kind of similar age to you. Yeah. We're actually the same age, which blows my mind because I, I kind of feel he looks I, quite a bit older than me. He does. He <laughs> looks we're really the same, We're the same age. Oh, he wow. might be one year older than you. me. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, he was a high school senior when it came down in, uh, in uh, uh, Austin, Texas High School. And he started on public access TV talking about the conspiracies at Waco and what the government was trying to do to the people. Uh, then he, he got a radio talk show on KJFK, but he ended up getting fired despite having high ratings because of his obsession with the Waco siege. Is this like me being fired because all I ever talk about is Jim Jones? <laughs> I'm considering it. Um, <laughs> but also, he tried to rebuild the Branch Davidian Church at Mount Carmel. It became his personal crusade. Like he was fundraising to rebuild the church for the Branch Davidians. I know they they do have a little church there, but I don't know if it's probably the exact same one that they had. But you can go inside it and there's pictures. there's pictures of David in it. And they have, like, memorial sheets to all the people who died. You can read about them. Well, that's what he says, is that, uh, you know, the, the building was burned to the ground. They bulldozed the entire foundation, pushed it up into a heap, into a monument to the wreckage of the police state. Welcome the New World Order. He made his own, like, shitty documentary about it. I forget what it's called. Sure oh, it's I've called America it. Wake Up or Waco. Waco. Oh, my yeah, goodness. I'm sure you can find it online. Jones said his interviewing an investigation into Waco, as well as the bombing at, uh, of the Murrah Federal Building, said he said Oklahoma City was an inside job by the U.S. government and McVeigh's a patsy. No. <laughs> Although, I mean, I can, I can actually see a lot more conspiracies with McVeigh because he was obviously in the military and he did definitely do some clandestine work for the CIA. So I can see like more where you would think there's con the conspiracy theories with McVeigh. But no, I just well, think he's a nut job. And they were going to blow it up. They were, they were talking about blowing up the federal building for years before it ever happened. Their original target, target was actually the Empire State Building. But they I can't remember the reason why they decided not to do it. But they called it off. They were like, fuck it. We'll just go for Oklahoma. It's our runner up. Probably a lot closer. Um, Alex Jones maintains, we know the federal government destroyed Oklahoma City. It's proven. We know what you guys are engaged in. Just like Hitler burnt the Reichstag. <laughs> he, uh, cries for, okay. he cries out, we need indictments. You need to call for the indictment of Janet Reno. She's a murderer. We need Janet Reno to be indicted. She's Herman Goering in drag. <laughs> Which has oh. kind of got a bit of a point there. <laughs> Well, believe it or not, the Branch Davidians still exist to this day. They didn't sure die do. out after the whole Waco uh, debacle here. You know, nine Davidians escaped the fire, 
And they formed a new branch called the Lord Our Righteousness with a new compound in the old Waco space. And they even have a new leader. They don't have the pool, though. The pool has since been filled in, which seems a bit of a waste to me. Like, keep the pool. It's a, it's a selling point. How many, like, churches have pools? Not including the YMCA. Well, you need one for baptisms. Um, they believe that Koresh might return from the dead to lead them again. They said, David came to give us a message and hope. We hope to see him again. Our regret is only that we didn't serve God better. David will come and come and come and come and come and come again. So I'm saying he laid some decent pipe, that guy. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know what lame pipe means in the north here? I'm sure he did that too. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it means, yeah. <laughs> there are no heroes in this story, though. That's the thing with Waco. There are no heroes. No. You know, the ATF, the FBI, the Branch Davidians, the media, none of them. None of them could be heroes here. And over the past 30 years, you know, you see people taking one side or the other. There's, you know, conspiracy theorists are, are saying that there are satanic forces at work in the government. There's government conspiracies that are working against the people. It's tyranny. You got the NRA saying, this is why we need munitions. This is why we need assault weapons. But that's the thing. You know, they all return to Waco and the protests there, and the references all, you know, they still refer to it all the way up to what happened January 6th. Even January 6th, they had signs referencing what happened at Waco and governmental <laughs> tyranny. The people I always actually feel fucking sorry as for, like, I don't feel sorry for anyone who's fucking died, but I do feel sorry for the families who were left behind. You know what I mean? Because they got abandoned by their family just fucking off to Waco and then ATF and the FBI, they sign up and make a, you know, a deal that they could die in duty. So it could, could be expected. But it's yeah, like but you could also say... Every time Waco is mentioned. Imagine if that was like your sister who fucking died Yeah, but died you could there. also say survival of the fittest here at that point. Do we need those genes in society? Probably not. But I no, think but the, I... Worst, the, the, the worst part about this is that militias now blending with QAnon start saying that Democrats are child-abusing predators. Democrats are the ones enforcing governmental tyranny. <laughs> Democrats are the ones who are coming to take your guns, your weapons away from you, causing mass paranoia. And so it's not difficult for them to trace this line between Waco and Ruby Ridge and what happened on January 6th. That's why it seems like they use this as a form of justification to take their country back. You know, and, that, and, and I can see, you know, the Trump campaign and Donald Trump purposely choosing a controversial site like like Waco, Texas to, to prove their point. And so a journalist asked Trump's campaign if the decision, his decision to hold the rally in Waco was in any way related to the 30 year anniversary of the siege. And they responded, no, not at all. You know, Waco's location and the role of Texas in next year's primary schedule is a choice for using for uh, selecting the city of Waco, Texas as the campaign's first rally. He said, you know, President Trump's holding his first campaign rally in Waco on Super Tuesday uh, state of in the state of Texas because it's centrally located and close to all four of Texas's biggest metropolitan areas, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, and San Antonio, while it also has the infrastructure to build a rally of this size. So no, it's no coincidence at all. Fucking liar. You, nobody goes to fucking Waco. You go to Dallas or you go to Austin. It's an ideal location 
with the necessary infrastructure. We've got a parking lot big enough for everybody. We're not trying to give a shout out to, you know, the far right extremists, the militias and the, you know, the anti-government people out there. Don't be ridiculous. Oh, what are David you talking Nons about? Koresh. No, not him. Not the noncer. Well, I think we should pay attention to what Trump says during this rally. I would like to know if he references Koresh or if he references anything. He's got to say something about what happened at Waco. So it'll be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, People's Episode 887 here, sick and wrong. We got some phone calls coming up next. 323-522-4032 is that number. But first, here's a quick message from Adam and Eve. Hello, America. This is Barack Obama. Now that I'm not endorsing that white honky Joe Biden for president, I can talk to you about adamandeve.com. It's a great website for all of your sexual needs. I went over to their store and purchased a butt plug for myself and a 17-inch dildo for Michelle. So now I can fuck Michelle like I fucked the United States of America. Only this time, it'll be a little bit less expensive. I was fortunate enough to use the coupon code DIDDLE that's D-I-D-D-L-E, a checkout, and I saved some money, which helps now that I'm back on welfare. So head over to adamandeve.com and grab yourself an Obama-endorsed sex toy. Thanks to the Second Wrong Podcast. Good night, America, and good luck. It's okay, Rambo. We have a couple phone calls to get to here. People, you can call the Sicker on Hotline, 323-522-4032, or send us an MP3 uh, via email here, sickeronpodcast at gmail.com. Just remember, keep it under three minutes. So um, the first call we got here is an Ask Kate. Yeah, from uh, a longtime listener of the show. So let me play the theme music. You know, I love Amy Sedaris' uh, Instagram. She has one of the best Instagrams. Oh, it's really funny. She's great. Um, She makes some great posts. All right, so here's an Ask Kate question from a longtime listener. Hello, D&K. It's Gino. Hey. Happy Valentine's Day, I guess, coming up. Yeah. And it's on the matter of love that I'm uh, calling. It's a bit of an Ask Kate, I guess, but obviously D you could throw in your opinion as well that would be most valuable my ex-girlfriend who i went out with for 10 years seems to be in a relationship with my stepbrother who i'm quite good friends with now is that okay or is it weird okay thank you very much bye whoa that's weird (laughs) It is a bit weird. There, he's Eskimo Bros with his stepbrother. Um, yeah, I've never like full on. Have I shagged brothers? I don't feel like I have because I feel like it would come to my mind. I've definitely like shagged one brother and given a blowy to another brother. Wait, you blew your brother? No, other brothers. Like, brothers that I'm not related to. Oh, okay. Although technically, a... we're all brothers and sisters on this planet. Well, I was about to say, drunk dad shagged a lot of uh, women. So you might have some illegitimate siblings you don't even know about. So there's a good chance 
you could have given a blowy to one of your blood relatives behind the offie. Right. I must say, I was actually thinking about this this week. So my mum's last name uh, on her mum's side is very common Cumbrian name. It's very common in Cumbria and along the borders. It's in fact an old border reaver's name. So I've got that, you know, family DNA in me. And then when I was in uni, when I was going out with the filmmaker, he had the same last name. So technically, our bloodline's probably mixed. And I was shagging like a very distant cousin. I've always thought that with most uh, English people. Because you look at their teeth, you look at their snouts. It looks like there's a lot of inbreeding. There is a lot of inbreeding. I mean, it's hard to, even though there is a lot of like diversity in this country, especially once you start getting up north, it's like you just can't swing a cat without hitting a cousin. Well, that's why I always, like you look at a chav and they look unevolved. Well, a lot of them are, but a lot of them are super (laughs) sexy because of it. I love summer from when the chavs are on their fucking bikes, dude. When they're on the they're on their fucking push bikes, and they've got those really shitty tattoos, and be, they're kind of like sinewin muscly through mal malnourishment, but yet they're you know they're kind of like fighty, and they have that kind of like toned body, and they're just like, what the fuck are you looking at? You just like I'm just looking at you. If it, and that if turns you, top you off on in your trackies. Oh yeah, I have a total love for the chavs. There is no denying it. Like you'll have to experience the summer here. Well, you saw them when we went to I Aldi. Know, I did. I remember, them. and there was a guy that was shirtless with his uh, chav wife and their kids. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. In the summertime, as soon as you see a chav with his top off, you just know it's summertime, and it's like a little bit horny. Yeah, instant boner. So, <laughs> is that? Is it weird that his stepbrother, who he's friends with, is dating his ex? I think it's a bit of a bad show on his stepbrother's part. His step, like, wouldn't you feel weird about that? Well, yeah. You first of all, you're you know related through marriage or law or whatever, um, and you're friends. So I think there's a bit of a betrayal going on there. But the question is, how much time has elapsed between when you dated your ex? Like, was it like a decade ago? Or was it like two years ago? Because if it was like two years ago, I think I probably would be pretty upset if my stepbrother was dating my ex. But if it was like 12 years ago, and be it's a small it. village that you live in, I mean, I don't know how big Gino's town is. And it's Cumbria. It, yeah, and then it can make a little more sense. But still, I would, I would like to think that my stepbrother, you know, has my back. Yeah, you would like to think. I mean... Blood is thicker than water, as they would say. But it isn't. It really isn't when, like, pussy is involved. Yeah, apparently not. So, Gino, do you hang out with them? Like, do you have dinner? Like, does he does he bring her over to your house for dinner? And you all, got, you all play board games? Like, I, I just want to know what's the extent. Or is it, you know, or did you just find out about this from someone at the pub and haven't talked right. to him about it? Yeah, or have you been stalking socials and you're like, they're liking each other's posts? A little Ooh, bit too. That's much. a good question. Yeah, have you been stalking the socials to find out yeah. what's going on? How did you discover this? That's what I want to know. We need a follow up call. But yes, in my opinion, More it's very info. weird. And Kate Rambo, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a, a bad show on your stepbrother's part. So, what do you think Gino should do? Uh, what what can you do in this type of situation? I would bottle it up personally, and then I would wait for the next family gathering probably in the summer when men are going to take their tops off because it's summertime 
and wait for like the fourth drink on a really hot day to bring it up and then it'll just turn into a fight. I think what you should do, kind of piggybacking on that, is wait till it's a hot day. Wait till you got those sexy chavs walking around shirtless and then yeah. get your uh, your ex really drunk and see if she'll hook up with one of them. Take some pictures, take a video, send it to your stepbrother. Sabotage Ooh. that shit. Yeah, that's better. That's, that's what good. I think should happen. Anyway, uh, people, if you need some advice from Kate Rambo, just give us a call. We'll play, <laughs> we'll play the theme music. All right, and uh, the second call we have here came from Allison responding to uh, uh, to our, our uh, call out for uh, co-worker death stories. She has her own. Nice. So, yeah. Hello, guys. This is Allison in Rhode Island. So you're talking about co-workers who you wished, who you, you know, you, you kind of wanted not to die and who died. Well, I've got a coworker, a former coworker, who died, and I wanted him to die, and I got my fucking wish. I worked yes. with this guy for ten years, and in the last three, four years, I actually had to work in the same room with him. We hated each other. He hated me. I hated him. You would think management would have split you up a bit. If there's that much animosity between two employees, I wouldn't leave them in the same room. Sometimes, though, the hate turns into, like, a kind of love where you love to hate each other and it fuels you. Do you not find that, that you can just, like, hate someone so much that you end up actually liking them? Because I'm like, I hate you because I see a lot of my bad traits in you type deal. You're saying, like, kind of like an opposites attract kind of thing? Yeah. Sometimes it can, like, be like that. Doesn't sound like that's the case here. It sounds like they both just, he hated her to the grave. Yeah, I like. I do like having a nemesis. I must admit, I like having a, just a, a, a pinnacle person that I can put all my hatred onto. Usually, it's Paul McCartney. But still, though, nevertheless, it's a coworker, and other people in the office must have liked the guy. And here he is. He dies. So, what do you do? Do you just be like, laugh. you know, yeah? Do you laugh? Do you, uh, you know, dance on? Oh, his I'd grave? be smiling. I'd be smiling well, all day. We'll see. Could not talk to one another under any circumstance because we hated each other. And um, so the last conversation we had, he just said something completely outrageous to me and I just stormed off. And that was the last time I spoke to him. So, Do you think Allison uh, put a hex on him? I hope so. (laughs) There are a lot of, you know, weird things happening in Rhode Island. You know, I always find that amazing when people get into like actual arguments with coworkers. I don't think I've ever felt that passionate about a job to do that. And I've never really, you know, at my work, I've never had an argument with someone like that. Although I guess I have been yelled at before. I fell out with somebody in a workplace because they slagged off my car and I didn't speak to them for two years. Did you wish them death? Oh, yeah. And I would like uh, another co-worker didn't like that person. So we would just kind of conspire and just like talk shit about them. But yeah, just because he slagged off my cat. I was like, you didn't. no one slags off my cat. Well, that's inexcusable. That's inexcusable. It is inexcusable. Chi Chi is a baby angel. And don't you dare say anything. And he meant it as well. Like he fucking knows what he said. What did he say? 
he said that uh, my cat would be, he was like, oh, I bet your house is kind of messy because uh, you've got a cat and cats are really destructive, horrible animals. And I was like, actually, no, sir. My cat is a baby angel who doesn't even do any of the cat things that most cats do. So you can fucking fuck that. And I didn't speak to him for two years. But then after two years, I was like, I just started randomly speaking to him again. Are you guys friends to this day? Yeah, we, we're kind of buddies now. But it was like two years froze him out. <laughs> two years silent treatment. Did he know you were giving him the silent treatment? Oh, yeah, yeah. And like, I, I, obviously, I said to all the other co-workers, I was like, I'm not talking to that cunt because he said mean things about my fucking cat. And all I have in my life is my cat. And if he thinks he can attack my cat, well, this is why I should never have children. Because if anybody ever like said anything bad about my child, I would just go around and knife them. <laughs> I didn't think you'd care that much about a kid. Well, well, no, because it would be my child, and my child would be better than anyone else's child. Just like how Chi-Chi is the best cat of all time. Well, that's Thank good you. that you're fiercely loyal <laughs> to your creatures. All right, um, let's see what happens here. Fucker died of, of ALS. Um, oh, shit! After, in like, December of the pandemic, I think, 2020. And I was so happy he died. I was just like, you know what? <laughs> Goodbye, motherfucker. Have a great afterlife. I'm just so happy you're not around anymore. And um, he had a memorial service at work, and people kept. At least she's sincere. At least you know. ALS is a fucking horrible way to go as well. And she's so happy. Died <laughs> me, and I kept saying, "I'm not going." I hated him. He wouldn't even wanted me to be there. Yeah. And then his family wrote me, and I said, look, please don't invite me to this thing. I'm not going. Your brother didn't like me, and I did not like him, so please stop sending me emails. Anyway, sometimes you get your wish, and I'm happy he's gone, so fuck him. Now I have a great, you know, I don't have to work with him, and um, I'm enjoying life. Anyway, <laughs> keep, it sick, keep it wrong. Love you guys. Bye. God, I admire her attitude. Brilliant. It is yeah. brilliant. That's the way you should be towards your coworker's death. Like, that's the thing. Why do you need to feign, you know, sadness? You know, feign, like, you know, that you're mourning this person when you really couldn't give a shit about this guy. Who cares if, he's di if he dies? He's not special. He's still a dick. Yeah, and he would have had a torturous death as well. I mean, ALS is, like, not... It's not like, you know, oh, he had a heart attack and crashed his car and died. It's like he had a really slow death. sound like a slow death. Maybe that's why he was kind of an asshole. On Allison's uh, behalf, I will say that I'm glad he had a torturously slow death because he sounds like a fucking cunt. Well, I just find it funny that the family was reaching out to her and she responded with, Stop bothering me. I hated your brother. He's a fucking cunt. Yeah. And I'm not <laughs> going to his I'm not going to his memorial service. I'm not even gonna buy you fucking flowers. So eat a dick, bitch. Yeah, good for her. Brilliant. <laughs> that is the spirit. That's the way you should treat your coworkers. Um I had to this the guy that died in uh, my office, we had to sign this. I was kind of I was worried, not worried, but I was concerned that I was gonna have to write some kind of inscription like you know, like you meant the world to me. And uh, thoughts you're and prayers. A good person, you're with the and prayers, blah, blah. All we had to do, they had this like big poster thing. All we had to do is just sign your name, thankfully. Oh, 
That's so I did that. I did. I liked the guy actually. I, I did genuinely like the guy, and he helped me out. So I was like, all right. It, it wasn't a situation like this. Your signature is a bit of a squiggle, though. So did you make it legible, or did you just do your squiggle? I just kind of did my squiggle. They're gonna be like, "Who the fuck is that?" Yeah, who's gonna? Who's <laughs> gonna? But who's gonna use? I mean, the poster is gonna be given to his parents, I guess, because he wasn't married. Yeah. What are they gonna do? Yeah. Just, they'll probably put it at his funeral, or you know, put it out at his funeral, I imagine. Uh, yeah, and then it'll just get thrown away. Yeah. I was like, like I was the sitting there because when, whenever I'm, you know, I have to sign a birthday card or, or, or anything really at the office, and I don't know these people, I always say the same thing, like, to my best friend, who I always love to have dinner with, you know, D. Simon. That's what I usually say for an office coworker. But if it's, you know, if it's like I'm signing something to like, you know, listen to the show, I'm always like, if it feels like more than two fingers, it's probably a dick, D. Simon. I didn't feel I that. Just, I didn't feel that was appropriate. No, I usually just find it all-encompassing. All the best. <laughs> yeah, but he's any dead. Scenario. <laughs> you can't say all, all the best to someone who's dead. <laughs> all the best. Wait, all a... the best in in hell or whatever. Well, no. What I'm meaning is like all the best to me. Oh. Uh, all the best to me, Kate. I was tempted to write "see you in hell" and just like my name, just because if, <laughs> to see if anyone little... noticed that. <laughs> But no. And then do a little upside down cross. <laughs> C N L D. <laughs> I didn't do that though. <laughs> anyway, people, give us a call. We want to hear about the death of your coworkers. Um, I'd like to think that there are more out there who uh, you know celebrated when their uh, when their shitty coworker died, but I doubt it. Still an awkward situation all around. So give us a call three two three five two two four zero three two. Uh, once again, thanks to all the listeners who support us on Patreon, keeping keeping the show going, keeping it sick, oh, keeping yeah. it wrong. We do appreciate that. Patreon.com slash sick and wrong. Um, also, if you want to buy some uh, some some T Public merch, sick and wrong merch, uh, just go to the the T Public store. Sickandwrongpodcast.com slash shop. Click on the picture of the Pope, and uh, yeah, get yourself uh, get yourself laid in a sick and wrong shirt because that's what will happen. Yeah, definitely. With your serpent root. Finally here, second wrong song of the week. As mentioned before, David Koresh was a rocker. And he, you can find his songs online. So out of uh, all the songs that I listened to last night, this is probably my favorite one. It's called Madman in Waco, which I think is kind of has a double meaning, you know, considering the rally going on today. Uh, so this uh, Koresh recording of Madman in Waco uh, came out of the Texas State University's archive and other sources. You know, people are actually filing Freedom of Information Act to the government. That's a lot of these documentaries, especially the one on Netflix right now. That's where they're getting all this information, the recordings and all that. Well, um, I really want to come out, but it probably won't ever come out because it's uh, protected under British law. Is well, we were the first to do the inquest uh, after Waco, and that's when b- we sued Bill Clinton for the the death of the Brits that occurred in Waco. How, but how, they, I don't have, I didn't even read about this. How much did they sue him for? What did they win? Did they get any money? No, I don't think they. I, it went on for years upon years as well. They um, sued Bill Clinton personally or, or the U.S.? Bill Clinton and fucking tons of people. It was like tons of people for the death of the Britons that had happened in Waco because there was plenty of signs that they could have got the Britons out. But anyways, so during the British uh, inquest, they were obviously shown all the really gnarly, true, uh, the crime scene pictures of just like all the charred the bodies. Corpses, yeah. And I've 
like as much i'm a gore hound i do want to see that shit even though i'm always like grossed out by it i don't want to see it but we won't see it because britain's got different laws well i wonder if you could find online when the t-shirts that uh koresh produced it says david koresh god rocks we could we should do some of them on sick and wrong Ooh, yeah we should make those yeah. actually sell but he continued playing in christian bands like throughout his life and blasted his music right back at the FBI, which probably actually spurred the raid, if you ask me. Um, anyway, we're going to end the show here with David Koresh, Madman in Waco. People will be back next week with episode 888. Till then, take a seat.
Oh, yeah, there's Lieutenant Lynch, may I help you? Yeah, there's 75 men around our building, and they're shooting at us in Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, tell them there are children and women in here and to call it off. All right, all right, uh, hello? I hear gunfire. Oh, shit. Hello?